Colorado. This is John Baird with I Love Colorado Beer podcast. I Love Colorado Beer is your home for behind-the-scenes interviews and information from the wonderful world of craft breweries in Colorado, along with craft beer news, events, and festivals. And don't forget about I Love Colorado Beer's great beer gear, including t-shirts, koozie sweatshirts, hats, and much more. Just go to ilovecoloradobeer.com. Today on our show, we have Joshua Willett from Wonderland Brewing. So I'm here with Joshua with Wonderland Brewing. He is not the master brewer, and he is not the brewmaster. Would you uh, tell us a little bit why you prefer to avoid those terms? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not the only person who believes this, but, um, you know, I think being a master of something, A, would imply that I have some comprehension of what it is that I'm doing. And in reality, there's an <laughs> awful lot of magic in what goes on around here. And the other thing about it is... Um, you know, I like to relate what I do to the time and place in which I live. And, uh, you know, in the 1500s, people used to get kidnapped as brewers from city to city so that they would go make beer that tasted really good in the city that they got taken to. And uh, they don't do that anymore. And I'm under the impression that since they invented the thermometer, that most people should and can make beer. And... Uh, I have a lot more practice than most people, but I don't, nobody's trying to kidnap me, you know. So you, you've made that distinction so you don't get kidnapped, is that correct? Basically, okay. that's about right. right. That makes sense. <laughs> so would you tell me a little bit about where the idea for Wonderland Brewing came from? Yeah, I mean, initially, uh, we were throwing names around like crazy. Uh, I think everybody goes through that phase where you try to build an identity and, um uh, in fact, this particular name came from an image that my mom had sent me. Uh, it said Passport to Wonderland on it. It was a little notebook. had an image of a rabbit and the uh, court jester outfit, the Harlequin, you know, pattern. And um, I ended up texting that image to my boss. And I was like, you know, well, how about this? And he was like, well, I'll have to take a shower and I'll let you know. And, you know, half an hour later, he's like, I'm trademarking it right now. We should find a building. And the coolest part about starting with that as an idea or as a concept is it sets the bar pretty high for, you know, the creativity or where you want to go with the beer. And so it's a very exciting place to start. Yeah, yeah. You know. So would you tell me a little bit about some of the challenges that you guys experienced when you decided to open up your own brewery? Oh, I mean, the same challenges as... I mean, probably not the same, but they're all hard challenges. Uh, I mean, the first thing you, I think you have to do is you got to find a space, and then you got to figure out what kind of beer you want to make. Um, every style of beer, you know, came from a certain place, region, has its own ingredients, its own process, and so once you figure out what styles of beer you want to produce and what you want to focus on, then you get to go shop for equipment. Um, and then we were fortunate enough to fall into this really large old church. Um, so that gave us a lot of flexibility and layout and space, but uh, meant it comes with its own other problems. Uh, but as we, uh, you know, just tried to develop the styles of beer we wanted to produce and locating the space and spending all the money that we don't have, you know, um, it's just very exciting and 
lots, lots of different stuff, lots of different stuff. Robert was telling me when I did the interview with him that there was a lot of renovations that you guys had to go through because of the space that you guys selected. Uh, mostly it's just the height of the ceiling that makes it super hard. We knocked down a couple of rooms, um, stripped a whole bunch of ceiling tiles on the tasting room side. There's, uh, you know, tile and booths and the bar had to be built and we used old uh, fence lumber from Robert's uh, grandfather's property to make the bar out of. Awesome. And then we underlit it with like colored LED lights. Um, so, you know, lots of cool features went into the tasting room side. Try to create what I think is a unique environment. Uh, that's good. Uh, and then on the brew house side, uh, you know, mostly we just wanted to open up the space and reduce some of the unnecessary wasted space and hopefully allow us to grow to maybe three to 5,000 barrels in this space with a packaging line and, you know, also have some space that people can rent and come over and spend time close to the tanks and be near the equipment. And we think that's cool. People love to see how everything's made, so they like to kind of be near and see the uh, the fermenters and the bubbling and all that. And I've always been a big fan of New Glarus. I know that they are very open about their process and in letting people closer to their equipment than most breweries find comfortable. And uh, I don't disagree that it's a little uncomfortable, and we have a lot of conversations about it. But at the same time, um, this is food, and if you can come back into the kitchen and see where it's made... Uh, I think it not only lends a little bit more respect to the process, but, uh, you know, it should let the customer feel a little more comfortable about what it is that they're putting into their body and what they're drinking and where it comes from, and we like that. Right, yeah, I think that's important, too. So now a little bit more specifically about you. You worked at Wincoop Brewing for a little while under Andy Brown, is that correct? That is correct. Will you tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, it was the coolest experience, the most educational experience I've ever had in my life, um, I was very lucky. I homebrewed for a couple of years and, you know, dreamt that one day I might work at some place as cool as the Wincoop. And then I got a job, which blew my mind. Um, and it's a very, very, very diverse environment. Uh, there are 24 bright tanks in the basement of the Wincoop. They have nine fermenters now. So that combined with their random barrel aging program and a whole lot of flexibility that comes from being a very old company with, I wouldn't say like deep pockets, but like pockets that understand that creativity can be exploited for money. Right. Allows you to get away with lots of cool things. And I used to talk about the fact that they always had, you know, a minimum of five yeasts in the building and 17 some odd beers on tap at any one time. Lots of diverse flavors and styles. So it was just an incredibly awesome training ground to try to make these different beers and see the different process and how what the difference, I think, is between making beer as a home brewer uh, and as a professional and where some of the limitations lie on both sides of that spectrum. So tell me a little bit about uh, how you start out as a home brewer then. Uh, well, I think you start out as a drinker. <laughs> And you discover you like beer, and then all sorts of things kind of fall into that. You know, uh, my mother was in food services for years and years, and so I grew up in the kitchen. I grew up cooking and playing with food and spices and flavors and understanding 
preparation. And when I got to college, though I didn't choose to go into chemistry, I almost did. I've always had a love of chemistry um, and science and some of the scientific process that exists around that. And when I got to California and I was out of grad school, uh, I met someone and I was like, I have to know, I have to know, you have to teach me. And he was like, it's so easy, man. You just spend a hundred bucks and you have beer. And I was like, it can't be that easy. I have to know. And I literally, we drove to the homebrew shop and I still remember the very first batch I made. Um, went home that night, brewed this beer, stayed up till like 11 or 12 on a Saturday night. And the very next day, I was back at the homebrew shop buying equipment to brew all grain. And I was brewing in my house on Sunday. I was just, I was, it was, I was in. It was it. You caught it pretty quick then, huh? It was super quick. <laughs> I happened to be very lucky. I lived in a place with an incredible water table for making English malty beers. And so uh, that's mostly what I focused on and spent a lot of time just recognizing my terroir and my financial limitations and having a great time. <laughs> and that's what homebrewing is really about. Right? Yeah. Right. So would you tell me a little bit about the system that you used when you were a homebrewer? Oh, yeah. I mean, I still have it. Uh, same system. I still occasionally get it out, though not very often. Uh, it is a 40-quart. It's a 40-quart igloo cooler, about 10 gallons in size. I like them small. I've discovered with larger ones, they don't hold temp very well. And so I really avoid those, but it's just a square igloo cooler. I have a little stainless screen in the bottom of it. And then um, I have a, basically a eight-gallon pot and a five-gallon pot, and uh, you make beer, you know? <laughs> um, I've moved away from doing most of my primary fermentations in glass carboys just because I find them difficult to clean. And now that I brew on a regular basis, I understand how easy and important it is to repitch your yeast. So I do most of my primary fermentations in plastic buckets and all of my secondary stuff in glass. And I just find that it's a lot easier to repitch my yeast. Um, and I like the taste of that open fermentation, though I can't tell the difference really. <laughs> at this size. I don't think it makes yeah. too much difference. Yeah, some people say that in, in open buckets you get more oxidation and that can affect the flavors, but I, I've i never really been able to pick up that specific on, on the flavors. I don't think you should age your beer in plastic buckets, yeah. but I've, I find it hard to believe that plastic is so permeable yeah. that it would really change what happens in a week. Right. Not to mention the beer is generating huge amounts of carbon dioxide. and Right. You know, when you when you work in a brewery with things everywhere in the air and you have these big open tanks, there you learn to stress less. Yeah. You yeah, know. That makes sense. Right. So would you tell me about that first extract batch that you made? What was it? Uh, we did an IPA. I used Pride of Ringwood hops uh, from Australia. And I mostly remember my friends telling me when it was done that if it had been a little hoppier, it could almost be real beer. <laughs> you know, um, I don't remember much else. Uh, I know there was some maltose syrup and some Pride of Ringwood hops and maybe two and a half ounces or something at the end, but I don't remember much else besides that. But what a, what a trip, you know. So what about your transitions from that first system to this system that you guys have here? Oh, steps and steps and steps and steps. Uh, you know, the biggest changes are, to me as a adult brewer, professional brewer, um, not that homebrewing is child's play. <laughs> um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, there are some people who take it 
very seriously. But I would say that the biggest changes, the most important changes, uh, are the quality of chemicals. Um, I spend a lot less time stressing out about sanitation on a professional level, not because it's not important or because the risks aren't significantly larger. I get to play with chemicals that homebrewers just don't have access to, whether it be concentrated hydrogen peroxide or caustics or acids. I know my stuff is clean, or at least I think I know my stuff is clean. My brewing hose, I mean, I still remember throwing away, you know, vinyl tubing like it was going out of style as a homebrewer because I never could trust if it was clean or sanitary or I was never sure what I was doing. And I have this stuff now that's like 14 bucks a foot and it's awesome, you know. So there's just, there's little, it seems, it seems small, but it, it, it really improves your confidence in what you're working with and, you know. You, I think the biggest change in, in changing systems is uh, realizing how much beer ends up on the floor as a professional brewer. As a home brewer, you're like, I have five gallons. I don't even want to take a hydrometer reading. I'm afraid to dump it down the drain. Yeah. Ooh, man, I put gallons and gallons and gallons of beer either because it's cloudy or, you know, it, it goes into samples for standard daily readings or I'm taking pHs or, you know, I'm running it through the tap down the drain. It blows my mind as a professional brewer what the yield is and what goes down the drain because you just can't do that as a home brewer. Right. Right, you wouldn't have much of any beer left. You, you wouldn't have any beer left. <laughs> Dude, there'd be zero. There'd be zero. So tell me about that transition from a home brewer to a commercial brewer. Was it challenging? Was it exciting? Was it scary? Oh, super exciting. I still, I counted at least the first 60 days that I worked in the cellar at the coop. And when I started there, my job was essentially like canning beer and cleaning tanks. That's what they taught me to do. They didn't teach me much else. So... I spent the first 60 days wet and cold in the cellar. And I, I mean, the, I, I sold all my cotton socks or threw all my cotton socks away. I, I'm now 100% into wool socks because wet feet are awful. Um, but I literally spent every day just getting soaked to the bone. And that's where I kind of developed this thing I say all the time, which is if, you, if you're not wet, you're not trying hard enough. Um, you know, you have to love to spray the hose. You have to love to clean. That's your job. But uh, I literally just loved the fact that every day I got to work in a brewery and make beer. And I didn't care what I was cleaning up or how gross it was or how dead it was or what it looked like. And I just fell in love with being part of this process. And I still remember the beers that I made where I was the brewer that milled them, brewed them, did the transfers, did the cellar work, did the dry hopping, and put them on tap. Those are the coolest beers because when you're working in a big facility and the wind coop's not big, but there were still four to five of us, you know, around during the week, you rarely get to take a beer, you know, from beginning to end. All the way through. And that was just a wonderful, you know, every once in a while, every couple of months, you get to take a beer from beginning to end. And it was wonderful to be able to walk out to the bar, and it still is, and have people, you know, drink something that you helped make. Yeah. You know, it's cool. It's yeah. very cool. So more specifically to Wonderland now, um, what styles of beer are you guys most known for here? Um, I think the, the style we're most known for, though it's hard to say, uh, we brought a lot of that diversity, that concept of diversity. Robert really likes diverse beers. I, I like diverse 
styles of beers, uh, to, to the, to the Wonderland kind of, you know, world. Um, but we wanted to focus on some things that we thought we could package, that we thought were interesting. So we chose to bring in this really interesting Belgian yeast that we use as our Belgian house yeast. And we make a blonde with it that in some respects must be considered in the same vein of beers like Blue Moon or Avery's White Rascal or Shock Top or anybody out there who's making a easy drinking summer wheat beer uh, with a little coriander and a little orange peel, this is going to fit right in that world. But we chose to use this really interesting Belgian yeast with it, and uh, that comes with its own problems. But its uh, I think it makes the beer more complicated, a little more interesting to drink. Um, and so people come in, and it's, our, it's probably our number one bestseller because it's our blonde, but... I don't think it's the easiest thing we have on tap to drink. I think it's um, a little more challenging, and I kind of like that. You know, I don't think you should get a free pass every time you try something new. I think sometimes you should have to work at it of just course. a little bit. Of I think course. it makes it a better experience for everybody. And then outside of that, uh, you know, that Belgian yeast, which, of course, we use for other Belgian beers, like our Dubel, and we currently have a Weizenbach on tap, and... We're going to be looking at a trapel and a quad as fermentation space allows and other interesting things. We have some sour we're working on. Sour um, can be tough, especially large volumes. Uh, well, I mean, right behind me is a bunch of wine barrels, and eight of them are red wine barrels. And so we use that Belgian yeast to do the primary fermentation um, of a beer that I think will age very well and uh, we're trying to figure out when and where we want to add fruit and how we want to blend that as we're watching the barrels progress. Um, but, you know, that's where that yeast goes. And then we bring in other yeasts for other things. I really like standard, straight American ale yeast. I just don't like to overuse it, and I find that a lot of breweries think that the yeast is so easy to work with, and it is, that they use it for every style of beer under the sun. And I really like to use it, but I like to focus on hoppy beers. I think it's very hop-centric. And so it gives you a lot of room to build whatever kind of malt profile you want and then whatever kind of hop profile you want and let that shine. And then everything else we make, I basically bring in yeasts, specialty yeasts, just for those styles, whether they're wits or saisons or some of the English beers we make or lagers. Because I don't want to get stuck in that rut where we're using that American ale yeast for all of the beers that we make here. Um, muy no bueno. Right. <laughs> you know. So tell me about a beer that has surprised you um, that you've made here. As far as sales or flavors or like a problem that it had or something. I always think that... Uh, you know, we so we did this Belgian Weizenbach a while back, and it's a really interesting style in general. I don't know that they make that many of them in Germany, let alone in America. Um, it's weird, I sort of. But when we chose to do this beer, um, I, I basically, 60% wheat, you know, in the mash ton, um, way over the top. You know, like eight and a quarter percent, nine, eight and a half percent alcohol, and uh, 
we let the Belgian yeast go and I let the yeast self-rise and get all estery and funky and weird and strange because my intention in the beer was to lager it. And it was very wonderful as part of the process to take this beer, which I didn't think was very good coming out of the fermenter. I thought it was boozy and syrupy and way over the top and throw it in the lagering tank and let it sit and uh, took, you know, almost six weeks for it to settle down and really kind of clean itself up and mellow a little bit. And it's, it's wonderful on tap right now. Um, those are the kind of cool things that, like, you have an idea and you kind of know what you want the process to be. But we still get to experiment. I just do it 300 gallons at a time. <laughs> you know, which sounds like a lot and is really not. <laughs> you know... So Yeah, it's amazing the difference in flavors that you can get um, out of the fermenter like right away and in that final beer when it's on tap. I've definitely learned over the last year um, not to let people drink beer out of the fermenter. I would love to talk with them about what I'm doing and where it's going and how it's happening. But beer in the fermenter tastes nothing like finished beer. Yeah. And if you haven't been drinking beer out of the fermenter for very long, it's almost always offensive. Yeah. You don't understand what's happening. It's strange. Yeah. And so I've, I've really learned to just not do that. I tell people now, I'm like, it's in that fermenter. You can see it bubbling. Oh, can I try it? No. <laughs> you know? It's not the finished product yet. <laughs> it's not the finished product yet. So um, how many beers do you guys have on tap at all times here? We're really focusing on 12. Okay. We opened with seven, and I think that's perfectly reasonable. Um, it's very difficult to uh, open a brewery and have all the things in place on tap at the same time. Yeah. Um, between fermentation schedules, you know, the number of yeasts you can truly financially bring in when you're a small brewery, um, how you have to stack those up so that you get the beers out at the right time, when they're ready, so everything's good to go. It's very challenging. We opened with seven beers. I thought it was great place to open. We've slowly been eking our way up to 12. And at one point in time, I think we dropped to 10. Uh, during the winter, it got a little slow, so I don't want to brew too much. Um, that will probably never happen again. Uh, where we don't brew, we still may drop down to 10 beers. Um, but we're trying to keep 12 beers on tap. Occasionally we have a 13th on tap, you know, just depending upon what's flowing and trying to keep things seasonal and fresh and interesting. Uh, we have a few beers that we're trying to keep on tap full time. Uh, we have an IPA we'd like to keep on tap full time, our blonde, a pale ale. Um, outside of that, uh, there are some beers that are sort of full time beers, like our amber. But it's off tap right now because we just changed the yeast for the first time, and I'm brewing it with a lager yeast. So we're going to give that a shot. I know it's going to sell well and taste awesome, but it's not something I think yet that I can do full time. So these are the types of things where it's very nice to be small and have few requirements. Right. You right. know. It's funny you mentioned uh, it's difficult to open a brewery and have, you know, seven beers ready to go. I interviewed another uh brewer uh just recently and they said that because of licensing issues and things like that they weren't actually able to start brewing beer at their facility until their open date oh. which which was horrific obviously but uh they said they actually just called around and talked to some other breweries in the area and they 
opened with like seven or eight collaboration beers. Right. That, where they just went to the brewery and said, hey, I'd love to buy the grains and, and pay for everything and just do this collaboration with you. What an amazing industry. Um, the pay it forward mentality of this industry is mind blowing. I hope it does not go away as, you know, whatever happens in the mm-hmm. next 15 years. Um, as far as I can tell, I have yet to meet someone who has not been 100% open arms, open minds, open ideas. Every time I talk to somebody, they're like, oh, yeah, we have this $50,000 piece of equipment. Please come use it. You know, it's it's just been wonderful. Uh, and I don't know where really that comes from. I, I don't know any other industry quite like that. I mean, maybe you might see that in food where, like, one chef might share with another chef a magic secret, but I don't know. But it seems to me in the brewing industry that we're all under this impression, and I think it's very true that when one brewery succeeds and does it really well, it makes all the rest of us look better. And the biggest concern the Brewers Association has right now, we spent a lot of time talking about it last year, is that with all these new breweries opening up, how are brewers maintaining quality? And so we want, you know, these breweries to have access to these resources they can't afford, you know, have their questions answered when possible, so that the end result is that the quality of the beer is awesome. Because if you're selling low-quality beer, uh, that makes the rest of us look bad. Yeah. And uh, we do our best <laughs> to not do that. Um, we, we certainly won't sell it. Uh, we have put two batches of beer down the drain um, for various fermentation problems. But that's our goal, really. I mean, if, I, if, it, if it doesn't taste good, we're not going to sell it. Um, so why would you have to pitch those uh, two batches of beer? The... Uh, diacetyl. Ah, uh, okay. You know. Yeah, it, it happens to everybody, I suppose. Right. And, uh, you know, I, and, I, and I suppose that um, you're playing with a brand new brew house and it sounds simple right like we bought a 10 barrel brew house but i don't actually make 10 barrels of beer i make 12 and a half almost all the time and you have to kind of learn as the process is going how much water uh does that really equal in your system and what is the loss in your system and you can do some of that before you fire it up for the first time i spent a lot of water dumped a lot of water down the drain (laughs) trying to figure out how big some of my you know, tanks are and, you know, what was the water volume I needed to clean them, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then you have to do it and make beer, and right. then it has to taste good. And I feel very fortunate. We just did our 65th batch yesterday, and uh, we put two down the drain. So those aren't awesome statistics. They're pretty bad, actually, if you're looking at it from a statistical standpoint. Uh, but, uh, I haven't put a batch down the drain since like our first 12 batches. So I feel from a statistical standpoint, yeah. that's better. That shows improvement. Shows <laughs> improvement, you know. Um, but it's, it's something where, uh, it's something we're trying to stay focused on. And you know, beer's food should be consumed fresh most of the time. Uh, you know, you wouldn't eat like a six month old tuna salad sandwich. <laughs> so don't, you know, is if, if we have beer on tap for too long and the flavor profile changes too much and it's not good, I'm just not going to stress it. Right. You know, like, it, it matters to us as well. You know, we want the customer to have a good experience. We want to feel like they're drinking something they enjoy and we want them to drink something we enjoy making and we're proud of. And if we're not proud of it, whatever, man, it's just beer. Yeah. 
you know. I've dumped so much down the drain. It's no stress. No stress. <laughs> so would you tell me about how Wonderland caters specifically to families or to pet owners or to specific groups? Yeah, you know, it's something that we've tried to focus on. Um, my owner has two kids, uh, and one of them is uh, special needs. And so part of this whole process is making sure that he has time to spend with his family. And in doing so, we wanted to create a place, we're in the suburbs, uh, for better, for worse. And that means that most people who live here have families. Uh, it doesn't mean they don't want to stop drinking. It just means they have to do it with their kids around. So, you know, part of that is trying to find an environment where families can feel comfortable. Uh, so we kept the, you know, rock, devil, you know, indie motifs to a minimum. Nothing against Three Floyds. And we kind of instead went with the happy, family, cool, you know, I don't know what you'd call the tile and the old barn lumber we're sitting around right now, but uh, fun, you know, if anything, it's just supposed to be kind of fun. And we have games, and we're working on banging out the outdoor patio right now with, like, bocce ball, and we have indoor cornhole over on the brew, hole, the, the brew house side. We're going to fence the basketball court, I swear, very soon, and people will be able to drink and play basketball, or maybe not, but we're working on that. So, you know, we're just trying to remain a location that's unique in the suburbs, first and foremost, and then, you know, provide something that people who live here want. Uh, breweries are always community entities. Um, nobody wants to drive. You don't want people to drive super long distances, and they're not going to very often. Right. And it's right. one thing if you're, like, traveling around with your friends and you're sampling beers. And it's another thing altogether if, like, you live in the neighborhood, you want to go to your neighborhood brewery. Yeah. And so we are almost 11 months into figuring out who's in our neighborhood. And they still come in all the time and tell us they've never heard of us and they're happy to be here. And It's amazing how that can happen. It's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing how big the world is. So. Well, you guys also have ping pong. Oh, yeah, we do have ping pong. So, uh, whew, good catch there. Good catch there. We do have six... Uh, tournament-style ping-pong tables, and we do singles nights and doubles nights, and uh, you can always come in and play. And I do actually think that that's a little more attractive for families than, say, like, pool. Nothing wrong with pool. Sure. But, you know, giving eight-year-olds long sticks and tell them to run around an expensive piece of felt, it's a little more stressful than, say, handing them lightweight plastic balls and having them whack them at each other. <laughs> Doesn't hurt as bad if you get hit with a ping-pong Doesn't ball. Doesn't hurt as bad. Pool. Right. Tell me a little bit about you guys' future vision. How do you hope to expand and grow? Well, from the Wonderland Brewing Company side, this, you know, tasting room and the customer experience, this huge, almost four-acre property we are lucky enough to sit on, we have talked about all sorts of stuff from planting our own hops and doing some estate-grown style beers, whether they be hops or spices or other stuff. We've talked about putting in a barbecue joint in the back and making sure that people always have food, but that it's simple and straightforward and easy. We know that we we want to make this a destination for people to come and spend time here. On the other side of that, on the packaging side, uh, we're talking about a certain amount of growth, which in reality is a drop 
not even a drop in the bucket, you know, uh, of beer that would be produced in Colorado or in the area. But we are planning on putting two beers in cans this summer. We're going to put our pale ale in cans and our Belgian blonde in cans. And we're going to get to deal with all the problems that come with canning cloudy beer and, you know, uh, packaging and sales. And we're going to do a little bit of self-distribution. And I'm not, I'm always excited about the challenge. I'm not excited about the nightmares that I know are going to pop up as we try to figure this out. And then uh, the other thing that we're doing on that kind of distribution packaging side, and it's a little bit of both, is we are doing some barrel-aged beers, whether they be like our sour or the bourbon barrel stout we just put in bottles. And those are the types of things where we'd like to head in that cork and cage direction, something super classy, uh, something that you know, represents the time and the effort that went into what was in the bottle in the first place. And we're not quite to the cork and cage level yet, but we just did 500 hand-numbered 22-ounce bombers of our bourbon barrel stout, and that's it. That's all there is. Wow. I mean, there were like three extras, but... Yeah, I saw your your uh, YouTube video on that. Right, this yeah. is 501 yeah. <laughs> of 500. Did you number 501? No, it's okay. gone. Okay. No, 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 it's really gone. And, we, and I mean, in reality, there were maybe 10 extra bottles, but uh, they're not for sale, so you can't have them. <laughs> um, but I mean, like, those are the types of things that we're working on. And, and like I said, I like to bring in lots of different yeasts. We're always trying to do diverse stuff. I, I'm hoping that as we kind of figure out uh, what we like to make and the types of beers that sell well and the things that are getting a really good reception uh, from what we're making, that will hopefully lead us to make good packaging choices moving forward. Um, it's a very expensive investment in both equipment and man hours and time to put beer in a package, but uh, it's almost a requirement as a brewery, almost. I think you can get away without doing it but I think you have to not be on a four-acre piece of property because, you know, things have to be cheaper. Maybe you have to right. own your own property or something already. Yeah. Um, beer is very volume-based, and I don't think that that's bad. It's just it's kind of what the game is. The nature of it, sure. So we're trying to make some of the best decisions we can in that direction. Was well, there anything that we haven't talked about that you think your customers, our listeners, might be interested in knowing about Wonderland Brewing? Oh, man, come drink beer. It's tasty. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, from my perspective, I, I, I just want to reiterate the idea that, like, beer is food, you know, and um, I think it's very important to think about it that way. Uh, one of the, the things that I like to say, though, whether it's true or not or weird or not, I'm not sure, but um, you can get a burger from McDonald's and you can get a steak from a steakhouse. And technically, they're both beef, mm-hmm. right? But they are not in the same realm. Right. And I think in a lot of respects, you can look at beer in the same way. You can buy something that was made with primarily adjuncts and produced to have as little flavor as possible so that as many people as possible could drink as much of it as possible. Back to the volume business idea. Right. Or you can go somewhere and you can try something and have your brain tingled and learn a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the people that are making it. And I find that to be a far more engaging and interesting experience. And so we try to use expensive ingredients. We try to do cool stuff. I mean, we've been open 11 months. I'm pretty sure we've had at least 20 different beers we've made. Though I'm going to have to double check that. (laughs) 
But I know that we've, we've got to be close, if not a little under, a little more. And I think that's a very nice, kind of diverse way to look at it. There are seasonal things. There's always stuff we're going to experiment with. And, and I think that that's good. I don't think you should stop doing that. And as a customer, uh, I would say don't eat the same thing every day and don't drink the same thing every day. You know, there's new stuff out there all the time, and uh, you should go find it. Well, that's the whole point of the craft beer industry is to try new things, sample new things. You're not going to be blown away by every beer that you try. No. But if no. you try another one, maybe that one will. Maybe that one will. And, you know, that's the same for anything that's worth doing, you know. You should work at it a little bit and learn as you go, and whether it be coffee or cheese or, you know, skis. Remember when skis were skinny, <laughs> right? And nobody liked to do it because it was awful. So, you know, it's just like beer is uh, beer's wonderful. It's a very, 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 very culturally unique, you know, awesome experience and uh, tastes great. So do more of it. So, Joshua, what do you think about this new law that's coming out about uh, grocery stores and them being able to sell full-strength beer? I think one of the, the biggest thing that the consumer doesn't realize right now, and I as a consumer would love to buy full-strength beer at the supermarket, that would be great. be super convenient. Why not? But it is very detrimental to us as craft brewers, and it doesn't have anything to do with us as craft brewers and everything to do with shelf space. At, at small independent liquor stores. And the way the structure works right now in Colorado, um, craft beer in this country is still not 20% by volume sales. That means eight out of every 10 or more than eight out of every 10 beers sold is Budweiser, Bud Light, Coors, Heineken, Stella, Corona, Nothing wrong with these beers, but they are big, big industry players, and they have lots of money and deep pockets. And so if you run an independent liquor store and 80% of your sales come from Budweiser because people go to the supermarket and there's 3-2 Budweiser, and then they go to the liquor store right next door and there's 5-5 Budweiser, they're not going to buy their beer at the supermarket. They're going to buy it at the liquor store. We depend on those independent liquor stores for shelf space to house our products so that they are available for the other two out of ten beers that get sold to the consumer. If you can buy full-strength beer in the supermarket, those liquor stores depend on the sales right now of Budweiser, Corona, Heineken, Coors to keep their doors open and their lights on. And if you stop them from being able to sell their bread and butter... We lose tons and tons of shelf space, and that would be awful for an industry that is trying to grow and be progressive. And the reason we've done so well for so long in the state of Colorado is because of the current structure of law, even though it's obnoxious to have to go next door to buy your, your, your beer. Uh, the convenience part I'm not knocking, but the industry itself needs that shelf space. And if those liquor stores close... We're in a much bigger world of hurt, I think. You hear that, Colorado? So it sounds like Josh was thinking that uh, you should think twice before you sign the uh, petition and uh, vote for the uh, um, the law that's coming out. And absolutely, by all means, please reach out to the state representative. I know it's a pain, uh, but do it. Tell them it's not a good idea. There are millions and millions and millions of dollars at play trying to convince lawmakers that 
this is a good idea and this is not good for the industry in Colorado. We got where we are today because uh, there are independent liquor stores that are willing to carry our beer. We like that. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I've got one more section of uh, questions here to ask you. This is the lightning round section. Okay, John. All you right. got it? You got it? So this section must be completed as quickly as possible. Okay. And yes, it is a ranked competition. Okay. So at the end of the year, we'll have an annual prize, and the brewer that completes this section the fastest gets a prize. Okay, right. I'm gonna, should I close my eyes? Should no, I, should I, no. should I enter my own world? So, so over here, you can't see the questions and you have not seen these questions previously. I have not, I have right. not. Okay, alright, are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? Oh, How quick can you talk? Oh, I'm ready. Oh, you've been practicing? I'm, oh, I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. I've been practicing this for a while. Okay. Alright, are you ready? Um, yeah. Alright, what was the most difficult beer that you've ever brewed and why? I made a Pilsner and, uh, Infusion mash and sparge problems and louder issues and protein cakes on the top and seven-hour runoffs, and it was awful. Cans or bottles? Cans. Ales or lagers? Ales. What is your favorite beer in the world? I really like um, Duchess. Okay. What's, the, what's your favorite brewery in the world? I'm drinking a lot of stone right now. Okay. All right. Who's, the, who's your favorite brewer in the world? Uh, I like Matt uh, from Firestone Walker. Okay, what's more fun, home brewing or commercial brewing? Commercial brewing. <laughs> I would imagine that's the case. Do you believe in running Heights Kaboot? No, and neither do they. <laughs> what's worse, a skunk or a skunky beer? A skunk. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. <laughs> Is Zima a beer? Uh, it's a malt beverage. <laughs> that seems to be the popular answer to that one. In beer, what ingredient is the heart, what ingredient is the brain, and what ingredient is the soul? Uh, the yeast is the soul, the brewer is the brain, and the malt is the heart. I like that answer. I like that. In the movie Strange Brew, what did Doug and Bob claim to have found in a bottle of beer? Uh, nice try. An elevator to the past. <laughs> it was a mess. <laughs> All right, so let's see. You did that in... A minute and 30 seconds, which is not bad. No, but not obviously bad. not, obviously not super tall. <laughs> I don't think it's a world record, but it's pretty good. It's pretty good. So how can our listeners find you? Uh, you can email me just straight up at joshua at wonderlandbrewing.com. Um, you know, I don't want to buy your cars or, <laughs> you know, I'm not interested in marrying your Russian bride, but uh, I do love to answer questions about brewing or talk with people about stuff. I tend to be very open about a lot of knowledge um, that I may or may not have. So I always find that that's easy. Or um, I'm usually here from 8, well, I'm usually here from the time the bar opens to at least 6 and change, 5 days a week at a minimum. Um, and you're more than welcome to ask the bartender to come find me. And if I have time, I, I like to give tours and talk with people about what I do. Awesome. Awesome. So tell me where Wonderland Brewing is uh, located. So we're in Broomfield, Colorado, which is about 20 minutes north of Denver. And uh, specifically, we're at 120th and Sheridan. Uh, so uh, there are two streets that people drive on all the time and never at the same time. Uh, <laughs> but if they do, then that's where we are. Are you guys online? We are online. We're at uh, wonderlandbrewing.com. Great. And Facebook as well, probably. We do face space, and uh, we are fans of the Twitter, um, I think. <laughs> well, great. Joshua, thank you very much for uh, doing this podcast with us. John, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. 
Well, thanks again to Joshua Willett from Wonderland Brewing. Joshua treated me to a flight of beer after the interview, and I must say they are making some amazing beer there at Wonderland. Joshua is one of the most down-to-earth and friendly people you will ever meet. The atmosphere at Wonderland is fantastic, too. I do want to make one correction, though. I referred to the law about the grocery stores being able to sell full-strength beer. However, this is not even a bill at this point. Uh, if you have an opinion on it, you can make it known to your legislator. Just Google Colorado General Assembly, and on the left-hand side of the page, there's contact information. And pay attention to the 2016 ballot. Thank you, Colorado. And don't forget to check out our beer gear at our website at www.ilovecoloradobeer.com. Also, like us on Facebook, but make sure you get the real I Love Colorado Beer Facebook page. It's the one for food and beverages, not the one for web pages. And follow us on Google+. If you do, we'll keep you posted as to where we're headed next. But if you would like to find out the story behind any specific brewery, just let me know. My email address is john, that's J-O-N, at com.